The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. We uh, wish you a good evening. Glad that you're here, each and every one of you. I'm going to invite Jackson to come and read in the Scriptures this evening. So come ahead and announce your text of Scripture, Jackson, a couple of times, and then we will follow along. Proverbs chapter 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping good watch on the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perversiveness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. In the, in the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he who loves him follows righteousness. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Hell and destruction are before the Lord, so much so more the hearts of the sons of men. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by the sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. A wise son makes his other glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who is destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. The way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. He who is greedy for grain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones healthy. The ear that hears the rebuke of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before it, before the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Proverbs 15. All right, Jackson, welcome back to the pulpit for Bible reading. It's been a few months, many months since you've done that, and we get back on track with Proverbs chapter 15. 
We are inviting all the young people to go out at this time for their truth trackers. Memorize a bunch of verses for us, folks. Two things on our uh, plate for this evening. Uh, we had, be, had uh, gotten into last week a uh, question and answer kind of thing uh, where I took some time to look at the societal structure of the Millennial Kingdom. We uh, talk about our hope as Christians and uh, a lot of Christians uh, who granted are uh, true, true, true believers, we'll just make that assumption for now, they have a very general idea of what the future hope is. And, you know, to some or many, it's just, well, this is all going to end and Jesus will come and everything will be great. Then there are others who, you know, put a little bit more detail on it and, uh, or specificity and, and like us have held that the Lord Jesus will rapture the church and then the tribulation will come and then there'll be the second uh, coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. But that blessed hope of the church is then thought to be the rapture. And so we're going to go out of here suddenly at some point and, and that'll be great. And it will. But there's more. Okay? There really is more. And so we trust the Lord to help us to see and understand what the Scripture has to say about this, that we're not just looking forward to some ethereal you know, heaven like our brother was talking about this morning on the clouds of uh, harps and you know, just kind of a generic bliss that has no substance to it. But the reality is, you have a question? No, okay. You're holding up your hand, so I'm just checking. Um, that we are going to live not only in the new heavens and the new earth, but before that, on this earth with the King Jesus in Jerusalem, and there will be a millennial kingdom, a real kingdom, after, you know, during which there will be great progress, great advancement, great science, great, uh, well, faith for sure, and religion. I use that word loosely as you are well aware in that kind of context. It will be the true religion, not the not fake religion or works religion. But there'll be a real society and there'll be real people in this kingdom. And our hope is in part that. Not that we just go and we, we exist as you know bodiless spirits in the uh, hereafter, but that we will be resurrected in our bodies, that our bodies that are entombed are not uh, totally out of service. They will be brought back into service and we will live in this future kingdom. Of course, if we are raptured before we die, then we don't have to go through the, the unclothing part. You know what I'm talking about? As Paul said, I'd, I'd rather just be swallowed up by, by immortality than, than have to die, put off this body and be in that kind of bodiless state and then, and then have the resurrection occur. But for many, many, many of our brothers and sisters over the centuries, they have had to experience that. And we may as well uh, if the Lord tarries and uh, we'll just do, do whatever He wants us to do. Okay? So, we go, we then, uh, so the tribulation will occur, then this kingdom will begin. We've looked at that in great detail. The kingdom will consist of spiritual elements, righteousness, uh, relationship with God through salvation. Uh, many, many, many people will be rightly related to God. God promises in the New Covenant that all the people, and at least in Israel, the, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, will know Him 
from the least to the greatest. The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will be a great time of peace. Uh, instruments of warfare will be repurposed for agriculture. And there will be no more. They will learn war no more. Except for at the very end, we looked at the hiccup with Armageddon, not Armageddon, with the uh, final rebellion of Satan as Armageddon just before that. So, you have the spiritual elements of this kingdom. You have the political and governmental elements of this kingdom. We, Christians, and saints from the tribulation, for instance, will reign with Christ during that time. In other words, you will have a job to do. You won't just be sitting around doing Bible study all the time. You'll probably be doing a lot more of that than you are now, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But you will have a ministry serving, uh, and it will be a ministry. You'll be like a minister. You know what I'm talking about, a, a government minister? Yeah, you'll be serving God that way. There'll be uh, administrative functions. There will be nations. And in the case of anybody who squirts out of their proper place, there is the iron rod rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who which He shares with His people so that anyone who steps out of line will be trampled down and crushed like a potter's vessel. Then there's the ecclesiastical aspect of this kingdom. There will be a kind of what I call a churchy feature to it. Um, there will be worship in this kingdom. We know there will be some kind of system centered around a new temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel 40-48. to There will even be animal sacrifices there, as confusing as that is to most Christians. There are good reasons to believe that that is to be taken literally. And it is no step backward, no step backward uh, into some old dispensation, but a step forward again. Then you have the economic aspects of this kingdom. In other words, I'm saying there's going to be real money there. There's going to be real transactions, real, uh, real prosperity, real uh, lifting up of many out of poverty. There will be physical aspects to this, agriculture, technology. Uh, I don't know that, and I really can't speculate. I, I have thoughts in mind about what it might look like, but if you think our age uh, where we live, if, if things were ideal, where we are kind of going along, humming along in a nice way, if you think that's, that would be good, it would be far better than, than that. And then you have the moral aspect of this kingdom. It will be a place of high individual and societal morals. We will not be bemoaning the societal ills that just go on unabated with no end in sight and uh, with people who actually applaud and support those things uh, that, that, that just leaves us sometimes when we think about it aghast that they could think that these things are good to promote. And so those are the kind of uh, structural elements. And then we said who is going to be in this kingdom. We said number one, the king. Number two, the resurrected church. And I won't go through all the texts again with these. Number three, the resurrected Old Testament saints. Okay, So you have the king, you have the church, you have the resurrected Old Testament saints. There also is clear evidence that there will be the resurrected tribulation saints. That's in Revelation 20, verse number 4. Those who were beheaded for their testimony of Christ will live and reign with Him for a thousand years. Very, very wonderful hope that those dear people have. And I think for all martyrs, 
throughout the church age and, and prophets and so on in the Old Testament era. You know how much blood they shed there uh, from the top to the bottom of Israel as they repulsed God's prophets and did not want to hear what they had to say. Um, there'll be a special reward for those martyrs who have died. I think of those even in our own era. Some have said that in the last, well, 100 years, I'm thinking, I don't know the number exactly, I can't remember what I read, but in the last 100 years, more Christian martyrs than all the prior years of the church history combined. And we sit here not even realizing that our brothers and sisters' blood is being let out on the ground. Hmm. It's got to be, my friends, that the that the voice of the earth cries out to God with the blood of all the innocents and the blood of the martyrs crying out in louder and louder number of decibels to God's ears. And at some point, God is going to say, I can't take that anymore. I am going to respond like He did to the cries of the children of Israel. And He will act for His people. Until then, be patient, my friends. Be patient, be serving, be continually working for Him and focused on those things that are of true import in our lives as we prayed earlier. Uh, there are certain things that just have no hope of saving us because they're corrupt and uh, run by corrupt people. But our God saves. Salvation is of the Lord. Fifthly, we stopped here last time. Living Israel will be a part of this kingdom. Living Israel. First, how do they make it into the kingdom? Well, they have to survive the tribulation period. Okay? So, this is, uh, this is not a very good set of chances. Can I say it that way? The chances are very low. Israel will be in very difficult straits. Um, Throughout the tribulation, look at, uh, you don't have to look at, but you can if you want, or listen carefully to Matthew 10.22. You will be hated by all for My name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Endures to the end is often just treated as a, a spiritual thing, as a spiritual and you know, perseverance, but actually in this case it has also to do with physical uh, redemption from the ravages of the tribulation that will come upon the people. Of course, it doesn't do you much good to endure to the end if you do so not in faith, right? Because you'll endure to the end with no faith and then you'll find out, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to face judgment and that's all there is for me. So, uh, we must take that into account. Matthew 24 and verse 22, the Bible says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Okay, that's speaking of physical salvation. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So, if God let the tribulation just run on, eventually there would be no more believers. They would be snuffed out. But that's not going to happen. God will bring guarantee that. So, you have to survive to the end of the tribulation and God will see to it that some do that. Then you must, if you're a Jew... You must pass the judgment in the wilderness of the peoples. Now, what the exact nature of that judgment is, some may debate whether it's, it's part of a battle uh, or it's actually just part of a, a judgment scene. I have taken it to be the latter. 
And uh, that's in Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20. And verse number 33. In Ezekiel 20, it says, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out, I will rule over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And I think that fury has to do with the fact that God has to He has to tell the nations, let my people go. Again, He has to force the issue to bring them together to this place. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will plead my case with you face to face. You know, kind of like Isaiah, let us, let us reason together. That's, a, that's more of a judgment passage than we would like to uh, probably admit. Uh, God in the early chapters of Isaiah is laying out a lawsuit against the people of Israel in their evil ways. And it says, Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. And here's the judgment. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. That right there, my friends, I think is the key timing passage of the New Covenant. When, is the, when does the New Covenant actually become fully operational? I might just say operational. It's here. He will bring them into the bond of the covenant. Yes, the blood of the covenant has been shed. Yes, we as Gentiles benefit from the blood of that covenant. You understand what I'm saying here so far? But the Jews largely have rejected the Messiah. And so they are not in the benefits of this covenant. And God is saying, in those days and at that time, I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And He will do that, but He hasn't done it yet. This passage is where He does it. Okay, so at the end of the tribulation, all these judgments that we've been talking about are occurring and God is going to do that. And notice what He says in verse 38. So not only you have to survive to the end of the tribulation period, you have to pass this judgment. And here are the ones that don't pass. I will purge the rebels from among you. It's, it's Remove them out. And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Now, if you read carefully that verse and think about it, he says, then you will know that I am the Lord. If you think about that, He's going to gather the, all of them out of the countries from which they came. Right? But these ones who fail, the judgment, the rebels, will not enter the land of Israel. So, what happens? They're literally in a no man's land. They're not in their countries where they were. And they're not going in the country into the country where they were supposed to go. They're rebels. I take it that they're executed. They're done. There's no other choice. They can't say, well, I know I'm a rebel, Lord, but let me go back to my home in my other country. No, that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly. Well, in any case, um, so then, all who pass under the rod, that's a, a shepherding term, right? You pass your sheep and your goats under the rod and you can kind of direct the ones that you want this way and direct the ones you want this way. So the, the good ones and the bad ones. And the good ones, 
they're going to go in to the land of Israel. Okay? The basis of the judgment, I understand, is their response to the gospel of the kingdom, which will be proclaimed by the 144,000 witnesses in Revelation. Okay? So the tribulation will not be without witness. There will be gospel witnesses there. God will see to that, and some will be saved during those days. When does this occur? Again, I mentioned already at the uh, end of the tribulation. And there's, the details are a little bit foggy, but we know from Daniel that there's this period of tw- tribulation, 1260 days, and then uh, there is a period of 1335 that he mentions. So there's a, do some math, you get your 75 day difference. There's something that happens in those two and a half months where I believe God is doing a cleanup after the tribulation, getting things straightened out, inaugurating the kingdom, and that sort of thing. So that's living Israel, how they make it into the kingdom. I saw a question here. Okay, so the question is, in Romans 11, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, where does that fit into this timeline? Very good question. First of all, let's make sure we understand when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he means Jewish people, okay? Israel, as a national entity, will at some point be entirely saved. Now, I understand that to be right after the point of this judgment. The rebels, any, any leftover rebels have been purged and those who enter in to the land are in all properly related to the king. Then you will be able to say the entire nation is saved. Okay, So that does not mean that the remnant of all time is saved. That's a common view, but it's, uh, it's not true. It also doesn't mean that, um, you know, that a small number of Israelites will be saved at the end. There's going to be some kind of massive work of the Spirit of God. By the way, you do agree, I trust, that it is God who saves, right? <laughs> he can save whomever He wishes, whenever He wishes. But He always does it through the salvation that Christ provides, right? So, when in Zechariah it says that He will pour out upon them the Spirit of grace and supplications. Chapter 12, I think you can look it up. 6, 10, somewhere in there. Um, He's going to pour that Spirit out upon them and they're going to turn from their evil ways in mass numbers. Now, I don't think that means every single Jew alive at the time. I think there are some that are going to be like, hmm, I'm not going to do that because I'm a hardhead. Okay? And they will be counted among the rebels. It's always the case, my friends, that you have those people who just refuse to be rightly related to God. So, that's what I think the best answer to that question is. All Israel will be saved occurs right at this time in the inauguration of the kingdom. Living Israel. What's their role going to be in this kingdom? What are they going to do? Well, I could turn us to Isaiah 60. You know, there is something about the book of Isaiah and I feel like I I and we together should read this book and just soak in it for a while and think. We miss a lot because we don't know Isaiah very well. And in Isaiah, 
you see uh, in chapter 60 a great picture of what this kingdom will look like for Israel. Basically, you have to understand that God made a bunch of humongous promises to Israel in the, uh, from your perspective, or timelines going this way, in the, in the Old Testament era. And they, they messed up okay, more than big time. And they were carted off from their land, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, all of that. They remain yet to this day in a state of judgment under God's wrath because they rejected the Messiah during the first century and they refused to take Him even after Peter and the apostles preached to them in large numbers anyway. And so, they're in this, this problem state. Okay, But those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel and all those guys are not yet have not yet ever been completely fulfilled. They shall be, in other words, the time period when these all these promises will come to glorious fulfillment waits until the millennial kingdom. That's why there has to be a millennial kingdom because God's promises have to be fulfilled. There's no way that they cannot be fulfilled. This is why Paul writes Romans 9, 10, and 11 because he's saying to us, okay, has God's Word failed? Has it failed? He made these promises. They haven't come to pass. What about it? He makes promises to you. Is he going to keep those promises or is he going to just kind of forget about those too? Never. He will not. And so those promises will come to pass. It's just taking more time than what we would like. We're very impatient, right? We want everything now. And, uh, but He will fulfill those promises to, to Israel. So they will be the most respected nation. Remember Deuteronomy 28? They will not be the tail. They will be the head. They will not borrow, but they will lend. They will be respected by everyone instead of a trouble to everyone. Remember that verse this morning? They're a heavy stone for the nations. seems like it's all the United Nations actually talks about is how, you know, how to not be nice to Israel. It's crazy, but... I'm, I'm exaggerating, okay? But still, there's some truth to that. Um, other nations will look to them. People will look to them as, as what they should be, the intermediary nation between the, the world and God. Arise, verse uh, 1 of Isaiah 60 says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This does not just refer to Jesus. Okay, This refers to the entire nation. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart will swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Tell me, when has that occurred in history? It hasn't, but it shall. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance to my altar and I will glorify the house of my glory. I'll drop down to verse uh, 10. 
The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish and those nations shall be utterly ruined. Nobody in their in, in the current situation can imagine how this could ever come to pass. But there are a lot of things that happen in the world that we could never have imagined would come to pass. And God will arrange things in a glorious fashion so that this will occur at this time in the Millennial Kingdom. And it will be a glorious time. And even if some today would think with gritted teeth, that shall never occur because they hate Israel it will come to pass. As our brother said, the wrath of man will praise God. And He will force the nations to bow in homage to the King of kings and to His princes who rule with Him. Well, there's a whole bunch more uh, in Isaiah 60 and throughout the rest of the book. Maybe I should take up a study of that and... uh, it's only 66 chapters. How long do you think that would take? I've got to do it sometime. I'm just compelled, you know. I'm compelled, but uh, it's a it's a daunting project, you know. Can't lose. That's right. Yes, I did, and I, 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 the format of Job worked out okay. Uh, it, it did work, so I'll have to think about doing that for for Isaiah. Begins with one step, right? That's right. All right, uh, finally, number six on our list. So we have the king, we have the resurrected church, we have the resurrected Old Testament saints, resurrected tribulation saints, living Israel. By the way, this means that you're going to have in this kingdom people in, in, in their regular alive bodies who have memories of this tribulation, they've survived, and you're going to have people in their glorified bodies, in Christ, the church, the resurrected people. I mean... There will be nobody, well, I don't know if I can say that. There'll be some hardheads, I'm sure, still, but it doesn't seem like there could be anybody during that time who could deny resurrection because there there will be all these people who are resurrected right before them ruling the kingdom. Anyway, we'll see. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or self-originating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in the microscope. Yep. Yes, I know. It's it's sad. Yes. It 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 is. Yeah. It's. I understand exactly what you're saying. It's. It is in a sense hard to imagine, but here we've been in this faith for a long time, and our our minds have been transformed in a way in which it becomes hard for us to imagine how could I have been or how could others have been so hard-headed to not believe the truth. Okay, finally, the last group that I'll deal with here is living Gentiles. So not only will some Israelites survive the tribulation, but some Gentiles will as well. Now, don't ask me the numbers. It could be still millions, millions of people. 
Um, how do they make it into the kingdom? Well, they also have to survive the tribulation. They have to pass the judgment outlined in Joel chapter 3, which we looked at not too long ago. That is the, the, the judgment that occurs in the valley of what? Think about a king's name, Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Talked about the wilderness of the peoples earlier in Ezekiel, but here's a little different. The wilderness uh, of the peoples different in the valley of Jehoshaphat where the nations are judged before God. And again, there may be some distinction about the nature of this judgment, but uh, it will be a, a severe, severe judgment for those that do not follow the Lord. And so, uh, they must pass this judgment. And uh, the judgment basis is the same. Remember what we said before, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ. Remember I said the gospel of the kingdom has as a subset what we call the gospel of Christ. You know, we think about, we think about individual salvation. You know, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I believe in Him. I believe that He rose from the dead. I'm saved. I'm happy. Wonderful. That's part of a bigger picture. That now you're a citizen of Christ's kingdom, as Pastor Odell talked about this morning. And you will be a citizen in that kingdom, even though right now you're just a, uh, uh, what do you call it, an expatriate. You're, you know, you're not in your own, you're not in your home country now. You think, you think you're in your home country, but you're not in your home country. Your home country is a better country, a far better country than what we are in right now. Uh, so, Anyways, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, they are judged on the basis of their response to that. This also occurs during that second, or that, that 75 day period that we mentioned earlier, as far as I can understand. What is their role? The Gentiles' role? They will fulfill their role in blessing Israel. We just read about that. The Gentiles will bring their wealth. I think that's like taxes. That's tribute. That's support for the international government. They will support that government. They will learn about God and His laws through Israel. And they will worship God in Jerusalem. Let me uh, pick up a couple of passages there uh, in the Minor Prophets. In Micah chapter 4, it says, Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war Anymore. Any international disputes? To Jerusalem you go, my friends. Get it, get it straightened out. And so they will learn about God and His laws and they will bring their tribute and their glory into Jerusalem. We read that in Isaiah 60, verse number 11. So, uh, what, about, what about these people who come into the kingdom as in their regular bodies, surviving the tribulation. Uh, where, where, what happens to them? Do they live forever through that thousand-year period? Not sure. Uh, there seems to be death uh, there in that kingdom still. Because why? Sin, right? The wages of sin is death. There is still that. Um, 
you know, but what happens when they pass away? Are they waiting for the end of the millennial kingdom or are they immediately resurrected? Or uh, The Bible, as far as I know, is silent on this subject and uh, so I can't really say for sure. I could say what I think. Remember those key words? But I'm not going to go there. Um, at least some of these saints, uh, eventually those, they will have families. They will have children and their children will have children and they will see their children to a great many generations because there will be a great extension and longevity of life. If you can imagine Jesus' ministry to Israel where He basically wiped out demon possession, dealt with all kinds of disease and sickness, that's going to be extended on a worldwide scale. And so life will be much greater in extent and longevity than it is today. Uh, and so there will be great numbers of people, uh, people who have grown up in this idyllic golden age. This is, this is real utopia. We don't, um, we don't hope for a political revolution to bring in utopia. We hope for an intervention of God to bring in the real utopia. We have a question. Yes, the question is, is it only those who are saved who enter the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation? My answer is yes, that's what I understand. Yes. And because remember, we have the judgment on Israel, which they pass under the rod, the rebels are purged out, Israel that's saved is all that's left. Sheep and the goats judgment, which I didn't specify you know, greatly here, but we talked about that wilderness or that valley of Jehoshaphat. You have Gentiles there. You have sheep and you have goats. The goats depart from me, workers of iniquity. And then you have the sheep enter into the joy of your Lord, enter into the blessing of the kingdom. So that, that seems to be what's happening there. Again, it's maybe hard to imagine just how that looks, how it's going to work, but it seems to be what Scripture is telling us. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. We'll find out more details later on. See you there. Okay. Yeah. Carolyn. Yes. So the question that was raised is, will the Jews accept Jesus as God? And the answer is absolutely, unqualifiedly, yes, they will. Okay, They, they will understand finally that their Shema speaks of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They will look upon Him whom they pierced and they will have the awful realization... What did we do to the Son of Man who is also the Son of God? That's what he was trying to tell them all along. He said, tell us, who are you? And he said, I've been telling you. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. I have divine prerogatives. I am the Son of God. In other words, what he's saying is not, not that I'm subordinate to God, that I share the attributes of deity entirely with the Father. When He's working... I'm working. 
He has given me you know, authority in His human, humanness to lay down His life and to take it again. The, worship, the angels worship Him and all of that. So, included very integrally in the Gospel of the Kingdom, in the Gospel of the Saving Grace of Christ, is that one must recognize that Jesus is L-O-R-D. And they will recognize that. That is, what is, that is essential to saving grace. That is essential to the salvation that God provides. So, somebody today who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus is God, then they're, they are they're saying, I'm a Christian, while they you know, snip the foundation out from underneath their own profession and they're showing that they don't really understand the Gospel of Christ. But essential for us to recognize the deity of Christ. And... Uh, us, yes, but them as well. There's no salvation in any other than the one mediator, the divine man, Jesus Christ. And so we want to be very sturdy about that assertion, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. All things. Amen. Yes. Yeah, you know my heart. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Yeah, so John 21, our brother is mentioning about Peter. Um, appealing to the Lord's omniscience. Lord, you know when the Lord asked him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He eventually just has to say, look, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart better than I do. And uh, you know that I love you. So uh, just one example of the Lord's omniscience. Now, we could do a study of the deity of Christ. We've done that before here. And I think even Sunday nights, I have a set of notes on that subject. And it is crucial for us to understand that that truth. All right, so um, this is all just a very quick kind of summary of what is to come, but it does kind of flesh out for us that hope that we have. It's not just a general hope, Jesus will come back, everything will be good. It's not even the hope more specifically of the rapture, wonderful as that is. But what are we going to do? I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of all concerned about the here and now and and it, it looms large in our view because you know we have kind of these you know temporally uh, limited uh, eyeballs in our heads. You know I'm speaking about our perception of things, but this life is only like okay. It, it seems like it's this to us, but it's really only like this compared to what shall be in eternity. The 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 the, the things we experience here, as as joyful or as difficult as they are, are nothing in comparison to what we shall be 10,000 years from now or whenever, whenever it is on the, on the calendar, okay? So this is just the mere beginning and I wanted to give a little bit of structure to our thinking about where are we going? What are we going to do instead of just having us think like, okay, I got saved from the fire, I'm happy, no worries about... Yeah, there are no worries about what will come, but God's given us something more to chew on 
And this gives us, this substance gives us that real hope when we face the difficulties of life. We don't just think, well, this, I just got to make it to the end. It'll all be over soon, you know. No, it'll be, you'll be there with Christ forever, with the saints, the Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints, ruling with Christ in the eternal kingdom, uh, in, the, in, the, in the millennial kingdom, and then in the eternal kingdom after that. So, tremendous. Tremendous truth, and I'm very glad for it. So that took a little bit longer than I anticipated, but that's okay. Uh, we have a few more minutes tonight. Does anybody have anything to follow up on? Question? Different topic. Well, I was going to go to a different topic anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> mm hmm. Okay, the question is, Revelation 117, uh, we talked about this morning, or listened about this morning with Pastor Odell's ministry. He says, uh, it says, and when I saw him, John speaking, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. The first part of this, so the question really has to do with, is it significant that it's his right hand? Well, it is at least true that it's his right hand and not his left hand. Okay, uh, I would also note that even more significant than right or left would be just the fact that it's his hand touching and strengthening the apostle who is like, da like Daniel several times. I mean, before Gabriel and, and these different situations. Some, sometimes, you know, we wonder if it was the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in a couple of those places, like in chapter 10. Um, you know, he's left without strength. I mean, can you imagine the utter terror that you would, you have never seen a supernatural being in your life, okay? Uh, you know, notwithstanding uh, all of you that have grown up in the post CGI movie age with all these fantastical creatures and dinosaurs and everything that looks so real, you know, on the, on the big screen. Uh, just computer-generated graphics. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> you, you still, you know, that's a screen or that's a cartoon or that's whatever it is. I'm talking a real supernatural being shows up in your house. Yeah, you would probably have some fear as well. Yeah. And so fall down. So, so God, Jesus graciously strengthens him and enables him to carry on, even though it's a terrifying situation. It's a it's a holy uh, situation. I mean, he's right. John was right to fall down. Uh, the only thing I would add about the right versus the left is that oftentimes in the scriptures, the place of prominence is the right hand. the uh, The person who is seated at the right hand of God the Father is God the Son. The person who is seated at the right hand of the Son is his. You know right-hand man, we might say. Why, why don't we say he's his left-hand man? I mean, it's, it's, it's discrimination against lefties, I tell you. You know, 
uh, it just is the way that it, it, it happened. You know, in, in some cultures, there is a lot more significance placed on the right or left hand. I think you would see that if you studied uh, the nation of India, for example, and the culture there, the use of the right hand and the left hand. What do you use those for? Um, and so somehow... It's come about over the course of history that there's a significance to right or left, and we tend to think, well, it's totally symmetrical. What's the big deal? You know, some people are righties and some are lefties, and and that's fine. Some are are ambidextrous, but yes, sir. Yes. Right. Right. It's very strange, as Thurman is saying, that that uh, kind of cultural stigma against left-handedness, especially years ago, when people would try to train their kids, who seemed to be left-handed dominant, to be actually. Right-handed to me, it just seems so odd today that case. Now we might think differently about that if we wrote and and uh, read Hebrew text, not from left to right, but from right. To, that's right. So you'd be writing the other way. And th- think about it now. You'd not be writing this way. You'd be writing this way in school, Jackson, from here over to here. That left-handed works pretty good that way because if you got your right hand, you're dragging it in your in your ink, right? Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. But anyway, right hand, I think maybe we, we could put a little point there to say that this is this is a an honor, a, play, a place of honor, blessing, um, but it's not a huge point that we need to concern. I think with yes. Yes. So what does he do with those? <laughs> oh, throws them up. <laughs> yes. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yes. The right hand of his power. Yeah. Yeah. Very good, Thurman. Thank you for that. Anything else? All right. Well, listen, uh, I'll tell you what I was going to tell you, but I won't tell you because uh, now I don't have time. Okay? So I had prepared in John 13, uh, the next segment of the chapter from 18, verses 18 to 30. And uh, you remember when we looked at the first section of John 18, we looked at this, washing the disciples' feet, an example of humble service. 
The second section of that chapter, the betrayer, I have taken a, a truth in my outline for that to be the betrayer and then the idea for us, we must be genuine in our faith. We must be genuine in our faith. Look at, look at Judas. Just look at him for a second in your mind's eye. Three plus years, hand-picked by Jesus, and yet he developed the habit of stealing from the till, embezzling the finances, the treasury finances of the group, which were given freely to them by people to say, I want to support your ministry. And the Bible tells us nothing of how that happened, but you know, it was just, it was just a, a bag that was set out or a box or a, an offering plate like we have in the back and nobody knows you know, when you give or watching or anything. It just goes in and it supports the work. And he was stealing out of this bag. And he, in his heart, hated the Lord. And so much so that he went to sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a servant, because he didn't have enough money at his disposal somehow. And he wanted the power, the money, the fame, whatever it was. And, but he was so close to the Lord. And I made the case last time, I think he was still in the room when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then he went out, remember? So that was what we were going to look at tonight, but we're not now because we ran out of time. Uh, but, you know, think about that. Think about the feet washing. Think about the psychology of somebody who is that brazen to betray their brothers and their highest friend. It's unbelievable. Yes, sir. It does say something, yes. The, the comment is it says something about the humility of Jesus if He washed Judas' feet. And, uh, and that was part of the, what I mentioned last time that, that highlighted His humility. I mean, He wasn't humble just to His friends. I think Now, I, I believe that in His self-sacrifice, He was doing something not just for those who are believers, but for the redemption of the entire creation and, and, and people who will be lost eventually. Um, yeah, He didn't save them on the cross. I understand that the lost are not saved on the cross. There's no such idea or universalism as that. But He served. I wonder how many people... Well, He healed ten lepers. And how many came back to actually thank Him? Yeah, where, where's the, where are the other nine? And with this, this fellow who's not even, a, uh, wasn't, wasn't he a Samaritan? He wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. And he comes back to thank, the, just another example of how God works with Gentiles. You know, the widow of Zarephath. And the people of Israel just couldn't stand it when the Lord mentioned her. You know, but think all the things that Jesus did, knowing, since he knew everything, I get no recompense for this. Not even a word of thanks. But I'll serve anyway. Wow. Friend. Yeah. 
Mm. Common, common grace to all, yeah. isn't it? Amen. Well, the humility of our Lord. We'll look into that, uh, actually the second section of the chapter, the next time we have opportunity. Uh, before we close, uh, anybody here who is interested in reading a short book on the doctrine of sanctification? Short book on the doctrine of sanctification. Any readers here that would be interested? I'm looking. You would? All right. So, when you're done... Return it, please, and we'll do it again. <laughs> That's a short little book. A good, good read for us. I've often said sanctification needs its own place in the major doctrinal headings of systematic theology because it's where we spend so much of our Christian life on this earth trying to be sanctified, right? So, yeah, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You for Your love for us and for laying out for us something about what is going to come in the future. You told us in the book of Amos and also in Genesis with Abraham the idea that shall the Lord do anything without telling His prophets? And you've told kinds of things that you're going to do and it's marvelous. You, don't have to, you didn't have to do that. But God, thank you for doing that to give us a little bit of insight into what's coming so that we might have a substantial hope, not just an ethereal, imaginary kind of hope in what will come. Thank you for these people today here in the building and listening to us live and those who will hear after this. And we pray that many will and be blessed and benefited from the Word of the Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray you take us safely home now. In His name, Amen.